Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to episode 64 of the Osher Ginsburg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsburg, as John Belushi once said. Greetings from New York City. I think that was a briefcase full of blues or made in America. I can't remember. One of those, one of those albums, one of those records changed my life. Uh, welcome to the show. This episode is Bridie O'Donnell part one. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. Um, you can find Bridie O'Donnell uh, on Twitter. She's at B-R-I-D-I-E underscore O-D, Bridie underscore O-D on Twitter. And you can also see her very, very interesting blog, Bridie.com.au. She's a doctor. She's a cyclist. She's a raconteur. You're going to love talking with Bridie. Um, If you're new, welcome. Really glad you could be here as a part of the show. If you've been here for a while, thank you for being here. I see your download numbers and I'm very, very grateful to each and every single one of you to make time out of your week to listen to this. If you'd like the show to magically appear in your phone each week, simply subscribe through iTunes. That's the best way to do it. You can also get uh, the um, Opencasts app or the Pocket Casts app, uh, which I like for both Android and iPhone. That also works very, very, very well. Uh, So subscribe and there will be a new episode magically appearing in your phone each week. So thank you so much for being here. A big hello to everyone who's new, who may have listened to ABC radio over the week. Uh, That was Um, in Australia. We have a national broadcaster. They have a mandate. They operate not unlike the BBC in the UK. They are a government run broadcasting company, corporation commission. And they um, have been airing half hour cut down episodes of some of these shows. And the first five went to air last week. And the next five go to air as of Monday the 15th. Um, I'm particularly thrilled because my mum listened. For the first time, my mum heard the show. She listened to the Ida Buttrose episode. Oh, I should find you the, the, 
the text because it's hilarious. Mum sent this hilarious text. Oh, where is it? Something like, I listened to the show with Ita. Uh, here it is. Uh, have listened to you and Ita. I found it to be an interesting and excellent interview. Keep it up, baby. Love, mum. I suppose technically she's the only woman in the world who's able to call me baby because I was once her baby 40 years ago. But uh, there you go. And then she wrote, P.S. I almost missed it. Queensland is on daylight saving at start of the 8.30. So tell your friends an hour earlier. So I guess if you're listening to ABC Radio in Queensland, listen an hour earlier. Oh, does that mean you have to listen later in Adelaide and Hobart? I don't know. Please check your local guys. But we're on 60 stations. I'm on 60 stations around the country. And a big thanks to Jamie Cummins, my producer, who's worked very, very, very hard to make all these episodes go to air. Tonight's episode uh, that airs in Australia is a uh, rerun of the Quentin Kennehan episode, which I would really, really, really recommend another listen to. He is an incredibly inspiring, inspiring man. Um, and I would urge you very much to uh, to listen to that because the guy has known all kinds of... Imagine being told you're going to die. I don't know. I think it was like five times he got told he was going to die before he was 17. He's now 40. In fact, he's got a one-man show and it's coming to the Adelaide Fringe next year and it's called Quentin, I'm 40, now what? Because he's, you know, and he talks about it in the in the uh, in the episode he and I talk about. It. He's like, I was supposed to be dead before I was twenty, and now I am here. I am forty. What am I? And he's, you know, having this kind of moment. Um, so he's actually running a possible campaign, which I urge you very much to uh, throw a couple of bucks towards, because he's an incredible guy. He's a very very funny man. He's a very talented performer. He's a very talented actor. He's on. Uh, he's in Mad Max Four actually, which is uh, <laughs> no mean feat. The website to donate to Quentin's um, show. It's a possible show, so their short URL is pozi.be forward slash Quentin Show. pozi.be forward slash Quentin show. So listen to that tonight and um, let him know that you uh, heard him on the show. So thank you very much to everybody that listened. And thank you very much, everybody that tweeted the ABC to let him know that they enjoyed it. That uh, really works. All that stuff really helps when I go to them and say, hey, so how about we make this a regular thing? Uh, it All that feedback really, really helps them and it really helps me. Uh, so if you've been enjoying this show, which you get for free and you'd like to see me get paid, but you don't want to do the paying, help the abc get paid which is paid through tax dollars so that means we all pay and don't don't mind about that bit just don't just tweet all right just tweet uh to check in i'm in uh, like i said i'm in the lower east side i'm in a fairly old airbnb but it's warm it's got a shower it's got a cozy bed uh it's interesting you know as um uh, as my life changed once i uh you know kind of cleaned up my act and got my shit together a bit more how as we say um I became a little more right-sized, and so I'm, I'm not really all about <laughs> suites and hotel rooms anymore. I'm just I'm very happy to just be in an Airbnb that is functional and works, is warm, got a bed and a shower. That's all I really need. But uh, it's nice to be back here. I haven't been here in a while. Um, I caught up with a, a great running buddy, Nadia, uh, my other running buddy, Alicia, um, today, and we used to have a thing of running around Central Park when we were here, but I... Um, I can't because I've got this busted labrum in my left hip and I don't know. Has anyone had uh, um, arthroscopy surgery uh, on their hip? If you have, let me know. Does it work? I'm interested. I'd be interested to know. Um, as you know, last week I told you that I'm, uh, it's New Meds Week. It's now, it's, it's now New, Meds, New Meds Week Part 2. 
it's kind of hard to get out of bed in the morning, which is a bit tough. But thankfully, I've got a doctor that's, uh, you know, he's as much managing, you know, we're just going to try and get you through the day without thinking the world's going to end. Um, we also want to get you out of bed and get you working. So uh, luckily, he, he's got both objectives in mind and I'm grateful for that and I'm grateful he and I have a good conversation about that and he's, he's a good guy. I'm glad I found him and uh, I think it's really important, you know, because, I mean, I've, I've actually changed um, uh, doctors because I wasn't really getting results with, with the other guy and I think that's also okay to remember too that you're, you're the boss when it comes to your own, your own health no matter what, you know, whether it be, you know, something mechanical like a busted hip or something chemical like it is in in when you're dealing with brains that if you're not making progress it's okay for you to say listen i'm not making progress i'd like to go talk to someone who might be able to help me because it's you know different strokes for different folks one a doctor might work really great with one personality type one doctor might work really great with another and so yeah i've found another guy and i've had two other guys actually they work as a team one does the talky stuff one does the druggy stuff and um yeah, we're doing okay. We're doing okay. It's been a good couple, like been a bit a month, but yeah, I think, you know, if there's one lesson there, I think it's nice to remember that you're in charge of that and you can make those decisions. And thankfully, you know, if you've got an iPhone, you live in a part of the world where you have access to more than one doctor. So um, just by mere fact that you're listening to this puts you in that category. So I think we're, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Anyway, uh, Onto my guest today. She is pretty good. Pretty good is equals she's pretty amazing. Her name is Brody O'Donnell. Brody O'Donnell is a short story. Brody O'Donnell is an incredibly talented and gifted doctor who, at the age of 35, decided to give up her incredibly talented and gifted doctor career with the incredibly talented and gifted doctor career money and go and move to Europe to be a pro cyclist at 35. And she's still a professional cyclist. And she absolutely crushes. She's a very powerful voice in women's sport. She's a very fantastic uh, advocate for women in sport. She's absolutely wonderful. She's uh, also, I think, like uh, uh, she's won the national rowing championships like seven times. She's done the Hawaiian Ironman. She's a time trial cyclist. Uh, she's been an Australian champion in time trial cycling, which is off the diff it's the other one. It's not the Tour de France where they all cycle in a massive bunch of about a thousand. It's where they have the big Star Wars looking helmets and they uh they they just kind of down on the bars and they just go like the clappers against the clock. Um she's absolutely fierce. I I really enjoyed spending time with her. She she was kind enough to let me come to her house in Melbourne, which as you can understand is is full of bicycles. And um we actually have some history together, Bridie and I. And uh, we'll get into that as this show goes. Now, this is the first in um, my show. This is a two-parter. I've never done a two-parter before, but I really felt that I I should because we did talk for a very long time, Bridie and I. We talked for over two hours, and that's a, that's a lot to digest. And the conversation was very much split in half. And so one half, we talked about her career path, and the other half, we talked a lot about cycling and women in sport and um, the role of women in sport in greater society and and we got the two distinct differently different conversations so to split them in half i had to find a point to edit and i'm really sorry not sorry about the cliffhanger at the end of this so in an hour from now you'll know what i'm talking about but enjoy this because bridie is 
smart, she's powerful, she's funny, she's charming, and she's an absolute machine when she gets on the bike. I promise you, I don't often make a promise, but I promise you, you will come away from this one hour of your life feeling better than you did now. So in an hour from now, you'll go, wow, yeah. I don't want any what ifs. Bridie will talk you through it. Enjoy this. We're going to get slurpy on the tea with Bridie O'Donnell. <laughs> well, this is uh, this is unreal. I was trying to figure out when the last time I saw you was ages ago. Twenty three years, I think. Crazy. You're twelve, yeah. I think I did see you one time. I don't know if it was. Can I you. take a picture while we're here? You absolutely can. Um. In Brisbane, do you reckon? Or I saw you. I was doing a B105 thing. Yeah. And I saw you at the Brisbane River stage. I think it was you. Did you ever own a Rollins Band T-shirt? Yeah. Oh, it was Absolutely. you. Absolutely. So there. it was you. Yeah, yeah. So I remember seeing you going, oh, my God, it's Brody. And then you left. <laughs> and that was it. Um, great. Well, it's nice to be having a cup of tea with you 23 years later. I know. Far out. Here we are. Cheers. Cheers. What kind of tea is it? Um, creme brulee black tea. Nice. So it's a bit vanilla-y and a bit. So um, they're taking some of these shows and um, ABC local radio's um, going to rebroadcast them. No way. Why? That's cool. And in the early shows, there was a lot of tea slurping and people writing and going, too much tea slurping. Yeah, okay. Tea slurping fire. <laughs> That's good to know. So what, what the ABC crunching? local radio guys were like, okay, hang on, what's the verdict? Brody's just eating some vegan balls that my brother's boyfriend oh, made. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Uh-huh. There is mum's recipe. I've gone totally vegan just for these <laughs> balls. <laughs> Today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Martin got himself a keeper. Um, so did you just get a sound editor to come in and de-slurp everything? Well, I know me. I'm the sound editor. <laughs> but the guys from ABC Local Radio have taken the slurping sounds and they're using them as bumpers. <laughs> Terrific. That's perfect. <laughs> Which is great. So... Yeah, I think the last time I saw you was somewhere towards the end of 1991. That was a big year, 91. was. I was actually going through my CD collection today. I don't know why I still have CDs. And every time I pick up a Powderfinger CD, I'm reminded of the fact that Bernard Fanning asked me out when Powderfinger had just formed in Brisbane. And I thought, you long-haired, yellow-skinned, sleazy lead singer of a band going nowhere. I don't think so. (laughs) I said, oh, no, thanks, Benny. Don't worry about it. What a jerk. That is brilliant. <laughs> that is brilliant. I'm sure there, there might be a few girls around Brisbane that have got that tale to tell. Just a couple of us. We talk on this show quite a bit about, I've had a lot of guys on this show that talk about the all boys school experience. But I'm just wondering if it was the same for the all girls school experience. It was exactly the same except we wore dresses. Yeah? Yeah. It was... I don't know. It's funny. It depends a lot on the kind of girl that you are, obviously. And we came into my all-girls school after um, one year for me and two and three years for my sister. So we showed up at All Hallows after and all the cool cliques had been established already. Oh, that's the worst. So I was starting in year nine at 13 and a half years old. And my our parents were divorced and we were told that we were the only family in the whole school whose parents were divorced. But we got in because my mum had gone there and her sisters and her great auntie was one of those nuns with a moustache. She lives up in the convent and stands in the window. Uh-huh. And so, yeah. We That's right, there was a convent on site. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And apparently a tunnel that connected our school to your school. But you guys never took it. You always walked the whole way there in, those, in that kit to come dancing with us on a Friday That's afternoon. Right. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Shocking. Yeah. Ballroom dancing, it didn't that serve me well. Yeah. <laughs> I got a lot of short guys. 
<laughs> you were a tall woman. <laughs> yeah. It was terrifying. Those, walking over to your school for dancing was terrifying. I mean, this is the 80s. We had, didn't know. know what girls were like. But I think that I was just wondering if the experience was the same because I got spat out of high school not knowing at all how to relate to women one bit mm. because I was one of all boys, all brothers, mm. and all I knew was guys and all my friends were boys and I, there was no women in my life that weren't my mum. Was the converse at all true or was there anything like that? Possibly, but I had a lot of exposure probably from school musicals and school plays, a lot of public transport, you know. Yeah. Well, that was it. I mean, that's why I did <laughs> high school musical. I mean, I'm not going to lie, Brady O'Donnell. Sure. I turned up to school the next day going, and there's this girl there, she's called Bridie. She's really tall. She's really tall and pretty and she sings really well. I don't, I'm in stage crew. She talks to me occasionally. Right. <laughs> Do you remember that I played um, Widow Corny, the morbidly obese owner of the orphanage in Oliver when we were in year 12? Yeah. And I was outraged that I didn't get the role, the main role. What's the name of a woman who got, who gets beaten to death by... Uh, Bill Sykes. By Bill Sykes. Nancy. Nancy. I didn't that went Nancy. to the other bride. That went to Brady Barry. Damn Brady Barry. Yeah. Uh, and I was Bill Sykes. <laughs> I got to do the you? beating to death. What a lovely story for you. Yeah, yeah, 12 domestic violence. There you go. <laughs> but, yeah, I remember waddling out onto the stage because I had this terrific um, big fat suit and all the people laughing and my sister went, oh, like inward breath, like what has she become just playing the big fatty who just hangs out with, I can't remember who played Mr Bumble, but his name was Jason. Anyway, I just felt like we did get some contact with humans yeah. of the other gender by doing that. But I think... Oh, look, I'm not sure. I think I had a very different experience from a lot of other girls because I was sort of multi, not multi-talented, but not exceptional at anything. So I kind of had friends who were good at sport and I had friends who were in the musical and I was in the maths team and, uh, but also worked hard at school and I wanted to get into med school. And then as soon as I got into med school, it was kind of like a version of school but with boys and except I did less study. So I think... I saw people who really struggled and I didn't, I was not a standout and I wasn't a struggler. I think I was just, just traveling along in the middle row there doing fine. Yeah. Yeah. My sister hated it though. She hated going in at year 11. She just couldn't stand the way those girls were. And free, free dress day was, in, was just awful because all these girls had all these beautiful clothes and we didn't have the right clothes. And you, you think, please God, let it just be normal uniform day. I don't want to wear, I don't want to be judged for not having those um, khaki shorts and the loafers and the country road bag and um, a fob chain and a linen shirt. I mean, it's weird. These girls were all dressing like their mothers do. Bizarre. Who knows what they wear now on free dress day. Oh, my. I wonder if there's, did you ever have, you know, here's what you can and can't wear on free dress day? I think there was no boob tubes. Yeah. Bummer. Did they call them that? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think nuns know what those things are. No. I got um, nominated to be a prefect and um, got called into the principal's office, who we called Mr. Anne. And Mr. Anne, Sister Anne said to me, we all know you're not a role model. Your mother's divorced. That's what she said to you? Mm. She said, you're never going to be a prefect. You're from a broken home. Just because you are a leader in other ways doesn't mean you're the cut. That's what she said to you? Mm. That's that's preposterous. (laughs) But, I mean, there were a lot of teachers like that. Um, Yeah, crazy. How did that make you feel? You would have, what, you've been 17, such an honour, here I go, prefect, let's make it happen. I was gutted. Then I came home and said, Mum, it's your fault. <laughs> Made it for my mother. Felt to make her feel really bad. She said, you don't want to be a prefect. I said, actually, you're right because you've got to stand at the bottom of the gate and check girls, make sure they don't have 
their socks down or make sure they're wearing their hats. Boring. Except when I moved to Melbourne 10 years ago, I never realised how important being a prefect was because I went out with a guy who was a prefect and his prefect pocket from his blazer was framed on the wall. Why? <laughs> and his brothers. And, oh, yeah, tennis club. And I, I remember laughing, thinking, that's a good joke. Because like, we didn't have blazers, mainly because you didn't need them in Brisbane, but also we couldn't afford them. So we just used to wear triple jumpers in winter. And, yeah. I remember the honour blazer thing came in, okay. in, like, just towards the end of my schooling where, you know, blokes would just have things monogrammed yeah, on yeah. there. I remember there was one guy, I can't remember his name, though, he had to get a second pocket put on because he was, you know, he was like, the, he was like the kid in Up. He had, like, <laughs> first kid. 15, first 11, this, that, the other, king of debating, yeah. you know, most handsome dude, dates the cot chick from all hours. He had it all written there <laughs> on, his, on his blazer. Um, so when did med school, when were you like, I'm going to be a doctor, that's what's going to happen? How, how old were you? How I was were you? 14, so in year nine, I wanted to be a doctor. Why? Um, both my parents are doctors. I'm just oh, wondering really? why. Yeah. yeah, I don't know why either. I, I do remember going to visit my grandmother in hospital and seeing nurses walking around with little red cardigans that were done up at the top and their arms were out of the cardigans. Very World War II era. I don't know. Yeah, what that RBH. <laughs> was, right? Wasn't it? Yeah, Royal Brisbane Hospital was old yeah, that's school. That's hot. I want to be a nurse. And um, I remember saying to my mum, I think I want to be a nurse when I grow up. She said, oh, why is that? And then I said, oh, Who's in charge here? Mum said, oh, the doctors are in charge of the nurses. And I said, yeah, okay, I want to be a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so then I remember, you know how we had to put down what we wanted to do at university when yeah. we were beginning of year 12? I put medicine there. Shit. I'm going to have to think of something else. Put something really crazy like law underneath it. Thank God I got into medicine. Um, and I was a pretty ordinary student in that I didn't really, you know, I could have applied myself harder, let's say. But um, I dropped past. out of university after six weeks of part-time study. Oh, what were you doing? A, a communications degree. I didn't You're know what it was. You're a fine communicator. You don't need to learn that somewhere I else. I was already working in radio. <laughs> I, you know, I got on as a, almost, I was almost a mature ed student. Oh, I was well 20 done. when I applied. What were you doing? Did you have a couple of gap years? I failed high school because I was Quite too busy. I was too busy playing guitar and trying to talk to girls and failing. Yeah, that's a good way to fail. Being though. fat and not really being terrified of everything and everyone. Were you terrified the whole time? The whole time, Shit. it was the worst. That's exhausting. I was isn't so it? scared, mm. so scared of everything and everyone in high school. But when did that change? Oh, when did I get on the SSI rise? <laughs> <laughs> you wrote a post note to your dad. No, in, no, no. in sobriety. Yeah, it's only recently. Really? Mm. Good one. Everything else was kind of, I, I, I make the joke that I was lucky and then I got paid really well for exhibiting my coping mechanism. Mm. <laughs> but a lot of people do though. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. I was um, talking about this the other day with a friend about James Hurd and this whole doping scandal with Essendon and I was speaking at a conference about. This is um, for people listening in America, that's an Australian football league and, and, you know, he's a footballer who's in trouble. Mm. Former amazing player turned um, coach. It's kind of like now if Lance Armstrong was coaching a, a cycling team. Yeah. And what has been extraordinary to, to see, to witness, is that all of those personality traits that made him an exceptional athlete, this sort of doggedness and persistence and resilience, actually making him a pretty nasty human being huh. because he's doing that whole thing like, they can't talk me down, I'm, I'm a fighter. And you think, actually, you've done some really bad stuff. You've totally disregarded the humanity of the 30 or 40 guys that you doped. And now you won't even put your hand up and say, sorry. And he, he, won't, he won't put his hand up. He's going to, maybe he'll give his Oprah interview in four years like Lance did, but the sociopathic traits that can do very well for you as a businessman or a, an athlete don't translate then very well to into marriages or... Leadership. Yeah. 
Yeah. Interesting. Mm. Interesting. So when you got into, um, you said you were in the maths team. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> I went to the maths Olympics. You went to the maths Olympics. Yeah, What's that in, like? It was great. You don't get a tracksuit and there's no opening ceremony, but it's otherwise identical <laughs> to the other Olympics. What what events are there? Um, there's just one event, and it's who's the smartest in the room. And <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that life, Brody? Oh, shit, Isn't man. that life? <laughs> it's like speed dating, but worse because it's longer. Yeah. And um, I got down to the final, the gold medal round, and I was where in, was it? Miraburra, maths capital of Queensland. Hello. Is it written on the sign when you drive in? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Miraburra. Bridie got a silver. She was robbed. Says. <sighs> I was up against some year 12 kid and it was a calculus question. As if, I, I mean, I wasn't Doogie Hauser. Like I was just good at maths. I wasn't a genius. Mm. So I got a silver medal. Wow. Hey, man, they say silver medalists are the most bitter. Bronze medalists are happy to make the podium. Winners are winners, of course. And they, you know, they become mm. dysfunctional later. And then the silver medalists, are, you know, that, it eggs you on. Wow. Yeah. This is an entirely, entirely huge and fantastic psychological study on silver medalists, yeah. isn't it? There, no, there has been. On the second place getter, the middle child of the podium. Yeah, right. Yeah. And especially like it's mean like swimming where it's four hundredths of a mm. second. Mm. It's, it's a knuckle on yeah. your middle finger. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's what I found so challenging about. Road cycling. I know we're jumping ahead. That's all right. But with road cycling, the, ch- the big, some of the biggest challenges are that um, there are so many variables beyond your control, and nothing is timed. So selection is in, is not transparent at all. A selection document to make an Australian team is about forty pages long, and on the final page it says, "Look, we're going to pick whoever we like the best. Uh, if you want to contest it, you will appeal, and your appeal will be unsuccessful, and you'll never ride for this country ever again." That's that's pretty much what's happened. So. If you're outstanding, you'll get picked. But if you're just somewhere in that grey area, how do you know? Like at least with a marathon, you run an A qualifying time. Mm. Or in America, they have a great system where they have qualifiers and you all show up and whoever wins goes to the Olympics. Uh But for other sports, it's like this six-month period is the selection period. If you do something reasonably good, we're going to consider you and put you on the long list. And the long list is really long. Wow. Yeah. Full on. I'm glad I do it. I, I don't know. Maybe in my business, the selection criteria is even even crazier. Well, I feel like it is. In mm-hmm. acting and in, and in the arts industry, there's, mm. there's that subjective element. Like, yeah. I just don't know if I like the sound right. of your voice. It's just not right for it. I think yeah. you're a bit tall. Yeah. Everything else about you is perfect. You were great. You were read really well. Yeah. You were really good for it. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Maybe just which is without the you know endless hours of training yeah. in anaerobic zones. But you know that amazing interview with uh, Naomi Watts after she made it big in Mulholland Drive, and oh. she was saying, you know, she kept going to all these auditions and then ringing her parents every Friday and saying, oh, "This is shit. I want to come home." And they'd say, "You should just come home. Just come home." Yeah. And she'd say, "I'll go," and they'll say, "You're a bit too skinny. You're a bit too tall. You're a bit too short. You're a bit too this." Mm. And then you, you think, "Yeah, okay. I'm going to be thick skinned. I need to be thick skinned." Oh, but I need to be really sensitive too. I really need to be in touch with how sensitive I am, but then disregard every piece of negative criticism I hear. Yeah. It's a terrible paradox. Yeah. And and so unhealthy. It must fuck with your brain terribly. So maybe it's the same. Maybe it's the same. Yeah. Um, so was it in you came to cycling via Ironman and then before that rowing? Mm-hmm. Was university when rowing turned up or was it after that? Um, no, it was after that. It was watching 
rowing on, at the Sydney Olympics when mm-hmm. I was um, a resident at the Mater Hospital. Mm-hmm. And I was in the emergency department watching Whittle um, be treating patients really diligently and then said, just a minute, I'll just be back and rush into the tea room to watch Kathy Freeman win the 400 metres and then rush back out and continue CPR. Oh, that's a joke. And then, <laughs> a good one. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, and I remember watching the single skulls on TV and I'd never seen rowing before. It wasn't a sport at our school. And I thought, wow, that looks Beautiful, so elegant, so incredibly strong and physically demanding. It's one It's one boat. It's two oars right. either side and mm. it's the seat that slides and it's a solitary and you're kind of steering with the back of your head. Yeah. yeah. And it shows incredible physical and physiological, you know, giftedness. But they maintain this beautiful form and then at the end they all collapse, you know, can barely hold themselves up in the boat. And I thought, oh, I should give that a try. How hard can it be, man? They make it look really easy. So where did you row here in Brisbane? Um, I went oh, to, um, oh gosh, commercial rowing club. Uh, the, on the on the, yeah. the Tuong Reach? Yeah, and I walked in the door and said, hi, um, I'm 26 and I've never rowed a boat in my life and I really think I could be good at it. <laughs> and they said, that's nice, you know, diluted much. And the thing with rowing is if you're not physically impressive when you walk through a door, then you're, you are pretty much disregarded. And when I mean physically impressive, I mean they literally size you up and down. If you're a woman and you're taller than maybe 5'11 and you're heavier than 75 kilos or whatever, 200 million pounds, then they'd say, great, you can be heavyweight. And if you look like you're um, slightly anxious and unstable, they could say, good, you look like you could get an eating disorder and become a lightweight. But I was just ordinary walking in the door, mm-hmm. not outstandingly tall or heavy and, and too big to be a lightweight. So I persisted for many years and I became a good sculler, but I wasn't terrific. And yeah. I, I was never good enough to represent our country. And but you raced and you competed? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I raced a lot. And I had an amazing coach called Peter Anthony who won a gold medal in the men's double skull in Barcelona. And he was a small guy. He used to be a lightweight. And when they won the heavyweight double skull in Barcelona Olympics, um, yeah, he was just technically beautiful. Mm. But he was a maddie and he used to – I used to row – in the Yarra River in Melbourne, and he would run beside me when most of the coaches ride a bike. And then when I was turning my boat around, he would do chin-ups in the tree. Yes. He was super hardcore. So rowing, it's a it's a very solitary experience. And, you know, speaking of uh, coping mechanisms that spur us on to greatness, um, there is an element, I remember my doctor telling me that there is, he said, look, if you think that, Say an Olympic, his example was an Olympic weightlifter. So if you think that an Olympic weightlifter who does the same set of motions 10,000 times in a row over four years for one eight-second event doesn't have a little bit of obsessive-compulsive disorder, then you're kidding yourself. So there's, there is something about the repetitive nature of, of rowing and the solitary. There's nowhere to escape to. Mm. What does that do to your brain when you're just in that boat for hours and hours and hours? It can be very beautiful. And there are days after, after you've been doing it for a few years where you'll have a row and in the evening and the twilight or something and you'll think, okay, I feel very satisfied. I've accomplished. I'm very accomplished at this. I can perfect. I can do a perfect stroke. Sometimes every third or fourth stroke is perfect. And you think, oh, I'm amazing. And then another day you'll have a shitty day and the wind, wind wind or the weather will be awful and you think, why am I doing this? This is, I'm tired, my back is sore, Ah, the weather's, you know, irritating. As you say, and I feel this a lot with cycling, that you are on your own a lot. And I would rather be on my own than have bad company any day of the week. (laughs) So I don't need to have shitty chit-chat just so that I don't feel bored. But it 
Rowing taught me a lot about process as well and focusing on elements of what you're doing and trying to perfect a skill. Now, I I didn't perfect the skill and and the rowers, the men and women that do it for 10 and 20 years, they say, oh, okay, I pretty much don't take bad strokes anymore. I'm sure tennis players, swimmers, they feel the same. And there's not a lot of tactical decisions to be made in rowing. It's straight line, it's time trialling and you're effectively just looking at your competition either side of you as you do it. So I suppose for me... It was, a, it was often beautiful and often heartbreaking. And for a pathological perfectionist, it was kind of the worst, best sport ever because you're constantly trying to make it perfect. And from an athlete point of view, the coaching style is terrible because all they do is tell you what you're doing wrong. And I used to think to myself, can't you just say to me, hey, 93% of what you're doing is good this timing and that and da da da. Now I just want you to work on that. But every time you focus on the thing I'm doing wrong, I think, is that mean everything's wrong? Are we just doing this alphabetically, yeah. chronologically? Like, give me a break. Here. It is interesting because it's it, it really is that in in a way where the, the the grace and the strength have to work together to 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 make it the most efficient way possible to to, to move through the water. Mm. And I know exactly what you're saying. When you get that, because I used to row, and when you get that good stroke, it's like the when you get a good golf swing or mm. you, when you do that good turn skiing or surfing, you go, oh, that one. Yeah, I want more of them. Oh, shit. Shit. <laughs> yeah, shit. Yeah. Oh, good. That's a good one. <laughs> Terrible. Awful. <laughs> Left hand too low, right hand. So it's just the whole time. Mm. It might drive you nuts. Yeah. Yeah, good for sure. But that's a lot of early starts, rowing, because yeah. yeah. you, you've got to go out before the wind gets up. You've got to go out when the water's flat and it's mm. cold in Melbourne. Mm. Yeah, it is cold. And you were doctoring at the time? I was, yeah. I was working in ICU, which was a cheery job. People are either dying or you're discussing um, whether or not they should die tomorrow, you know. Yeah. I think nothing prepares you um, for how to appropriately have those conversations with people, and I think they're doing it better now and now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But I've started teaching at med schools. I realized, God, we had some inadequate conversations about that sort of stuff. And in private ICU, you're the only doctor there for 24 hours and you end up being this sort of lackey diplomat between surgeons, physicians, intensivists and families. And ego, as you know, comes into play with all those different types of doctors. So you end up making calls all day long. Mrs. Smith, she's 90. I just, I better call the surgeon. Oh, and the surgeon says, that's outrageous. I'm not doing that. And you call the physician and say, sorry, um, the surgeon says that he says that da 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 And then mm. you call the family and they say, well, the mum's a fighter. And so it was a, so, it's sort of an exhausting diplomacy yeah. job and not much about science. 
Um, and I also became a bit bitter about how clever medicine is and that we're so good we can keep people alive, but should we? Yeah, this, I, I participated in a really fascinating discussion at a, at a conference once when they were talking about redefining death. And something in the quote was something along the lines of 2% of all, no, uh, 98% of all healthcare costs that you accrue over your entire life occur within the last two years mm. of your life. And what would it be? Not just like to, to, to like, just not, that's just monetary cost, not the cost on the family. And anyone who's watched someone that they love dearly slip away, mm. what if we redefine death? <laughs> what if we redefine death? Yeah. You know, it, it's, a, it's a heavy conversation. And mm. like, when I think about it, I'm like, I don't want to. Oh, no. I don't want to be connected to a tube. I don't want to, like, if I get some sort of stage three or stage four and I've made 80, I'll be like, awesome. Yeah. Bring the kids around. I'm going to watch the cricket and I'll be on the, you know, we're just going to go for a long walk on the beach, everybody. Mm-hmm. And I might sit down along the way and I might not stand back up again and I'll just watch the sunset and that'll be it. You know, I'm really not interested yeah. in. There was a great article in The Atlantic by an ethicist called Dr. Emmanuel Ezekiel, I think his name is, mm. on the East Coast, and he wrote an article about why I hope to die at 75. <laughs> Fascinating article, just got published last week. And he talks a bit about the physical, psychological, the cost of the yeah. sort of in social sort of cost, but also that idea, which is something I hadn't thought about, about um, impending generational um, affect that, you know, as a parent, when you age, you've got this effect over your children. If you still keep living to 90 and 100, you still have this effect over them, even when they're 60 and 70, and then they're caring for their children and maybe their grandchildren. Um, and they're still a kid. Yeah, yeah, and their contribution is different. They're not growing and evolving they, the way they would if you were dead at 75, um, which is really fascinating. Also, the idea of um, creative contribution that most Nobel Prize winners um, are at their peak in their late 40s, early 50s, and and that as we age, we start to feel uh, maligned that we're not contributing greatly to society. And he said there's not enough emphasis on mentoring. People want to still be brilliant or still be athletic or still be beautiful, when in fact those things belong to people in their 30s, 40s and 50s, and and people need to acknowledge that. He said we're not prolonging the, age, uh, the ageing process, we're just prolonging the dying process. Huh. Great piece, yeah. Being now, when you first leave medical school, you got to go and do the like the hard yards. You're out there in triage. You're in you're the you're the front line where people come in bleeding and drunk every ten minutes. Yeah, I remember I my did mom. That. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember my mom telling me stories about that. Now, a lot of people would only experience those peak panic moments or someone dropped a chainsaw on his foot once in their life. Mm. What's it like when you have that? eight times in a shift? Um, <laughs> it can do terrible things to your relativity score. And uh, I worked out, I worked rurally in rural Queensland where for three months I was the only Did doctor. you call it ruraling? I was a ruralist. A ruralist, man, <laughs> boy. So I was in these towns called Miles, Jandawi, Tarum and Tara and I was the only doctor I'd rotate around and you had no privacy, no life, um, you were terrified the entire time that everyone would die because of your total incompetence. You'd think, I don't know, I should never have passed med school. I'm an idiot. How do they, how do they even let me go out here? And thankfully most nobody died on my watch. I might have died two minutes later in the Aye. medical evac in the helicopter, but it was amazing. And then you, there is nothing better than um, tense, important situations to make you think very clearly. And we had this wonderful story of this great guy, this farmer who rung and said, yeah, 
look, uh, probably need to come in. And I said, oh, okay, Frank, what's happening is that I can't call the ambulance because my wife's brother drives the ambulance and he'll tell her and she'll get cranky with me. And I thought, oh, here we go. You know, this doesn't sound very serious. And so I said, what's happened? He said, oh, yeah, the tractor sort of rolled over my arm and it's looking a little bit uh, dusky. Anyway, the poor bugger drove himself in about three or four miles into town and he'd fractured his humerus, his upper arm, his whole lower his forearm had become, he had compartment syndrome and had lost blood supply completely and I had to do an emergency fasciotomy, which is run a scalpel all the way down the arm, forearm, so that all the muscles and everything split open to preserve circulation to his hand. And I'd never done a fasciotomy, so I rang Royal Brisbane Hospital and spoke to a surgical registrar and said, oh, and he said, to calm down, just put the speakerphone on and I'll tell you how to do it. And it can't go wrong because the guy's going to lose his hand if you don't do anything. And so after I did that, coming back to the Royal Brisbane. Did you save his hand? Mm, we did. You're amazing. But anyone would have. Nice know. one, Frank. <laughs> Frank's a champ. And they said, Frank. do I really need to go into Brisbane? I said, yes, you know, we're going to have to call your wife. Such a classic. <laughs> like, that, that's like just that Australian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My buddy uh, Warwick used to say, my dad doesn't go. My dad's never going to go to the doctor. My dad only goes to the doctor. He wouldn't go to the doctor if he was on fire. Yeah. Maybe bleeding out the eyeballs. Would yeah, that be? I probably should come in. <laughs> <laughs> probably come in. Yeah, fascinating. <laughs> so, what do you? What would you say? You know, just just to rewind a second, from the perspectives of someone who has seen family after family after family deal with that kind of end of life decision making, what would you say to people who uh, maybe haven't faced that yet, or maybe might be in the middle of it? What would you say from your perspective? Um, well, I suppose in a way, it is hard for me to apply my all my years of being exposed to death to a person who hasn't. So I'm very, I try and be very sensitive about the fact that not everyone has thought, um, how might I die? How will I feel about it? Or when my mother dies, what will I do? And that's never more present than when you discuss with someone something about a parent's will and they say, oh, I don't want to know about that. You think, um, are you living in La La Land? You know, your mum is going to die at some stage. Yeah. You've got to have this conversation. So I do think with people it's, and I've said this to my, my parents, my mum and stepdad and my dad and stepmum, they need to be very clear about what they want and what they don't want and they need to tell each other and tell us uh, so it's very clear so that, that we can't use our own agenda. And I saw that a lot, children or 50 and 60-year-olds sort of saying, I'm not ready. I'm not ready for mum to die yet. You think, well, your mother's got pneumonia and renal failure and she's 90. Um, we're keeping alive because we can. It's not about you anymore. Um, I think it's it's been very fascinating, and particularly in my new job where I work, um, I have a lot of time with, with people, like over two hours with a patient. Mm-hmm. So I end up discussing a lot of stuff with them that maybe they haven't thought about before. And it is constantly insightful, the things that people are anxious about, the things that they don't even consider, um, putting things to people in a way that just helps raise it in their consciousness. Sometimes you just have to do that as the first thing. What are the things they don't consider? Well, a lot of people don't consider um, activity. I don't know if you've heard about it, Osh, but sometimes moving your body is quite useful and productive. Now, no science to back this up, okay? It's it's a new thing, this exercise stuff. It's the same as, you know, not drinking a bottle of wine every night of the week, right? Yeah. But it's, it's just a really great reminder of how powerful peer groups are. Law firm peer group, banker peer group, you know, very wealthy man peer group is very different from my peer group and perhaps yours. And I think the things that we value and find important, yeah. it's important not to offend people by just saying, don't be a jerk, you need to lose weight. You need to say to someone, so 
how did how do you think you got to this point where you drive to work, you sit in a chair for 15 hours and you drive home and you make $10 million a year and you're miserable and you've got high cholesterol and type 2 diabetes because you weren't like this 20 years ago. So where, and that stuff is really fascinating for me. I find it difficult but also wonderful a lot yeah. of the time. What about when, like when you were in med school or any the mentors that you had, did they talk to you about how to deliver you're going to die in years or no. do you just have to make it up as you go along? No. And in fact, the worst experience I ever had was the first time I had to do that. And it was shockingly handled because I was an intern. So my first year working, my registrar was a lazy turd. And he said, we've done this procedure on this patient. Uh, We opened up his belly to see what was happening with his bowel cancer and the bowel cancer spread everywhere. We need you to go and tell the family that this is what's happened. And by the way, that patient, you actually went out with his son. So you're going to know now go and talk to your ex-boyfriend and his mother and say he's riddled with cancer. And there was no option for me to say as a 23-year-old junior doctor, um, no, that's highly inappropriate. Not only am I unskilled, but there's a, I know these people. Anyway, I went, I cried the whole time. I just felt so terrible for them. I thought, you poor buggers have to hear this news from me, the girl that broke up with your son six years ago when she got into med school. She was too cool for him. Actually, that's not what happened. Um, it was terrible. It was a terrible thing. And in fact, I cried a lot when I gave bad news. And I, I feel bad about that now because I do think um, one of the things I, I remember, and no one ever told me this, but I think when you get bad news, you remember details about the situation. You don't always remember the that you might remember the mode of delivery, but you also remember what the doctor might have been wearing or if she laughed nervously or if she used words that you didn't like. And that's a lot of pressure because then you think, well, every family's different. Some family wants just give me the information and others want hand-holding and, you know, mm. and you can't be that to everybody. Um, and, in fact, one of the nurses at the hospital I worked in here in Melbourne when I worked in ICU, she said, just be kind and it doesn't matter if you say the wrong thing, if you are as kind as you can possibly be. But that's often why I would cry because I felt so bad for them. I felt terrible. I felt like I was ill-equipped and they were getting the shit end of the bloody <sighs> wagon getting me. And, look, I actually got some lovely letters from families months down the track where they said, yeah. you were so lovely and nice and we're sorry you were so upset. Because also you feel disappointed as a practitioner that your patient is dying. Yeah. Which is very selfish, but you think, ah, oh, I should have been cleverer than that. We could have got it earlier, you know, the cancer. Or my, my, my dad used. To, I asked my dad this question. He said, because um, he's had to do it a bit uh, over his career, and he would say, "I said, I'll make him a cup of tea, and I sit him down, and I." He said he'd use the same line every time. He says these things happen; they're nobody's fault, and the sooner that you come to acceptance that it's happening, the sooner you can get on with either treating it. Or dealing with the consequences, because mm, that's a very good way of putting it. Well, he's out of years. Sure, he's, <laughs> he's, he's you know been a doctor since the sixties. So. What kind of doctor is he? He's a rheumatologist. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, the smart ones. Yeah, yeah a and lot. a lot of chronic illness and a lot of people who yeah. are not doing well. No cure. No, it's 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 a life um, quality of life mm. doctor. Mm. Yeah, that's it. Absolutely. You're just getting people, let's help you hold a spoon so yeah. you can feed yourself. Feel we'll work terrible. on the walking to and from the kitchen later. But let's just get your hands mm. working again. Mm. And that's it. And your mum, what does she do? Uh, she was an anaesthetist. Oh, and yeah. She retrained as a GP, and now oh. she she's still working. She's um, what does she do now? She was like uh, 
you know, the, the the kind of things where they need doctors to just approve people to go and do work, um, oh, H&S work. Yeah, so okay, she, she does that kind of stuff. That's so fit young men. Yeah, yeah. She nice. doesn't have to do any more geriatrics or paediatrics. Yeah, She's happy about that. <laughs> it can break you a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, the sickness. And it gives you the wrong, totally wrong end of the stick of, of um, our society and what we're like. You start to, and particularly in emergency departments, you think everyone in the world is um, has terrible unsupportive partners, chronic disease, they all smoke, they all drink too much, and um, none of them have good coping strategies. That becomes your perspective because when you work in a public emergency department. It's like being a cop. Oh, God, yeah. You, only, really, see, you yeah. only see people at their worst. Yeah. Yeah. So you would only have seen every day you go to school, go to work, and you mm. just see people at these peak experiences. Yeah. yeah. My child has this thing and I don't know what's going on and I'm terrified, mm. but I don't want my kid to be, you fix it. Yeah. <laughs> or I've denied it for this long, but now we need to fix it immediately. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Actually, when I worked in Bundaberg Hospital, people on the State of Origin, which was amazing three-game series of NRL, very aggressive, massive. So, yeah, yeah. Football. So let's just paint a picture very quickly. Bundaberg is a cane-cutting town, which will be very interesting now the free trade agreement is going ahead with China. Um, Bundaberg's a massive cane-cutting town and a lot of pub violence, um, very country. Yeah, Blakey, mm. Blake. It's, it's in kind of halfway up the Queensland coast. And, uh, yeah, State of Origin is a three-game. It's basically like if the Super Bowl happened every three weeks for six weeks. Yeah. This is a three-game series and yeah. it's intense, very violent Super game. aggressive, yeah. yeah. And basically um, no one would be in the emergency department for the two or three hours that the game was on TV except maybe an elderly Greek man who didn't know about NRL. And then in the half hour to two hours after the game you'd have um, – Kids with asthma whose parents had been ignoring them. Oh, look, John's been a little bit short of breath, but we just didn't have a chance to bring him in yet. And the poor little kid. <laughs> but, you know, can't, can't take you to the hospital just yet. We're just waiting for Queensland to score. And then another four hours later, there'd be 943 men all called Jason and they would all have either punched a wall or each other. And they were saying, it's bullshit. I was just standing there and that bouncer, he punched me for no reason. And you think, oh, no reason. You say, yeah, call the cops. And I said, yeah, that's, that's it, Jason. I'm just sewing up your face and then we'll call the cops. I really want to hear your story. Every night. It was fascinating. <laughs> Blokes and drinking and violence is just phenomenal. These girls look after each other when they get really wasted and they all drag, drag their girlfriends in together. But the men are all found on their own in the gutter, you know. <laughs> like, oh, Macca was too pissed. We had to leave him there. <laughs> Good friends. <laughs> So when you see, I don't know, I never really asked my folks this question because maybe I did when I was a kid, but when you see, and you would have seen people die before you quite often, I'd imagine, most people would never see that in their lives, ever. That's true. So what does that do for you walking around? And there's that great flaming lip song, which I just love to pieces. Everyone you know someday will die. Mm. There's the line, which is the thing that we all kind of quietly ignore, that everyone, we, we celebrate birth. Hooray, Facebook, unreal. No one, we all kind of like to forget that it's coming for every single one of us. So how does that change the way you walk about? How does that change the way you plummet down a descent on a bicycle? How does that change... Knowing and having yeah. seen death so many times, I'm not. I'm not actually afraid of dying, um, and I'm certainly not afraid of my life ending either. I've. Um, if someone said you're going to die tomorrow, I wouldn't be. I would have no regret, and I would certainly think, oh no, but wait, they're just. 
I don't feel that way at all uh, because I've never um, not done something that I've really wanted to do. I've made ample mistakes, but um, I've certainly never left anything to a what if. And that's very satisfying. But I realise lots of people haven't had that same luck or opportunity or they haven't peaked yet. They might be peaking at 65 or made decisions that they had to partnered with someone or taken a particular job. I, I understand that a lot of people don't have that same flexibility. So I think a lot of people are terrified of death. And I see that sometimes manifest itself in patients that walk in my door who are essentially healthy and wanting to be checked, that they they kind of want to scan everything and the results and they say, so everything's good, right? And I said, well, it's good today. And I, I made this joke with a fellow who I knew it would be appropriate to make it with, but I sort of said, but I can't, this piece, this report doesn't say you won't get hit by the tram tomorrow. You know, it doesn't rule out accidents and all these other things. Um, it depends, I suppose, a lot on religion or spirituality. And for some people, they feel at peace with what they're doing and where they've come. But a lot of people, there's so much uncertainty and fear and something we talked about before. Um, I felt making life changes in, and taking time out of my career really triggered a lot of other people's fear and risk aversion. Everyone Every doctor I spoke to when I decided to quit work and race as a professional bike rider overseas said, oh, bad idea. Yeah, don't do it. No, you'll get off the path and what happens if you don't qualify for the Olympics? What a waste. Oh, it'll be terrible. What are you going to specialise in? You know, how amazing. Med school's filled with really talented people who were very good at lots of other things before they became med students and they were great at music and sport school plays, you know, creative, and they gave all that away to be doctors and then they become narrower and narrower and narrower. And now they're the best, not just the hand surgeon, just the wrist guy. I, I do wrist surgery. I'm amazing at it, world class. Just don't get him talking on anything else because he probably can't. And so I do think that um, for me, I just thought, oh, well, I feel compelled. I really want to do this. And, yeah, it might not work, but I really believe that it will work. And so I'm disappointed a lot of the time because most of my ambitious plans don't work, but God, I, I feel like I couldn't not do them. There was no, there was no choice. It but was, for you to say, if it, it ended tomorrow, I would have no regrets. There's few people that would be able yeah, to. Few. Maybe. And that in itself is something that I envy greatly. What would, what would, ha- what would you regret? I would like to be a father. I would like to know what it's like to not wake up with crippling anxiety every morning. You know, it takes a lot of work. I'm working on it, but it's it's points of a point to a percent better every day. But it's like, I wonder what that's like. Maybe that might be it. So only two things. It's only two hey, one things. of those you could fix really easily. Yeah. It is a Friday. <laughs> you could impregnate at least 19 women oh, tonight if you just had a it's few the, more vegan balls. It's not the old days, bro. Life's <laughs> <laughs> very different these days. I think. Um, but it's interesting that what you, what you say about, you know, we, we should point, I should point this out, that at the point in your career generally where doctors go, all righty, I'm now going to go specialise or I'm going to go open my practice or I'm going to go team up with this guy and this girl and this person, we're going to open up our own thing over there. You went, I'm going to go and become a time trial cyclist and that's it. 
it's interesting how when you do that, and in many ways, you know, I I'm nothing at all compared to you, but when I moved to America, there's something similar. You, exactly, you trigger the fears in other people. And it's their fear talking, mm. not your fear Terrible, talking. isn't it, though? And and it's amazing, though, about so many things. Every decision you make that's slightly variant from what you should be doing um, is very – it makes people behave very toxically, you know. So, yeah. oh, wh- why haven't you had kids yet? Mate, you really got to do that. Yeah. And that's a total throwaway line. And people say to me – ask me about kids all the time – and, and sometimes I'm angry. Sometimes I say, be original. Say something. Ask me how I am. Don't say, don't leave it too late. You don't want to be too old. Other times if I'm bored and I need entertainment, I say, I, I could try and burst into tears and say, I've just done 43 cycles of IVF. Thanks. Bring it up. And see them like, crawl into themselves. <laughs> or say, oh, actually my womb is barren. Um, yeah, because of the terrible incident that occurred in my childhood and watch them back away from me. But I just think, People are extraordinary. Have you ever done those things for real? I have. That's awesome. Yeah, well, fuck them, you know. Like how dare they tell me what I should be doing with my life? Because as a doctor, we know that just saying to someone, hey, man, you really got to stop smoking, it actually doesn't make people stop. They see the ads on TV of that lung with all the disgusting stuff being coming out, they ignore them. I've asked smokers this. Mm. And saying to someone, mate, you really got to lose 25 kilos because you're heading towards diabetes, they go, oh, yeah, right, tell me something I don't know. And then they move on. And so I find it really obnoxious that someone would ever suggest to you what you really should be doing. And having seen a psychologist in the past, one of the things she said to me, which I really loved, was that idea that you should never use the word should and shouldn't. All it does is stimulate anxiety or guilt. I really should go to the gym. Oh, God, I've really got to stop doing But we don't change our behaviour. We just make ourselves feel bad and then we get that big whip and we whip ourselves and, God, I'm a bad person. Yeah. Um, I was on this seminar with a lot of doctors about burnout and it was fascinating. They were talking about doctors and depression and anxiety and they said some of the symptoms of burnout in doctors, um, there were all doctors in the audience, are things like, you know, you become resentful of patients and everyone starts nodding. (laughs) Uh, You begin generalising about patients, yeah, all of my patients are like this, you know. um, 940 place called Jason. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. You think all young drunk men are morons because they're punching walls? And look, for 95% of their life, they could be quite moderately decent. Mm. And so, um, but we do this a lot and that, you know, as you know, with anxiety, it's really people are really good at their internal voices, so much more cruel to themselves than they would ever tolerate from your friend. If your friend spoke to you like your internal voice spoke to you, you say, what an asshole. Mm. That guy's not my friend anymore. Ever. But you say, we say terrible things to ourselves. God, you're so lazy. Why didn't you work harder? Why didn't you get a better performance? Why aren't you, you know, it's mm. it's terrible. And I think when you talk about, I know you, you jest, but 0.1 of a percent better than yesterday, that that's good. Yeah, but some days it's a whole 2% worse. Really? Yeah. Do you know what things make can predict those days? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, yeah. What? I know. Yeah, that's all. It's all it's 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 slow, slow, slow progress. That's mm. the thing. It's like it's like glacially slow. Hey man, those gla- there's global warming. <laughs> yeah, don't know, tell right? the Americans or I the know. Australians. I don't know. In America and China did a thing. Yeah, yesterday. they're doing good. They shook hands. Brack's got to do something good. He needs to look cool. Mate, thank God. Far out. Um, but it's interesting when I when I talk, and it's got nothing at all compared to you know, people telling you about being a mother. But when people say, why don't you drink? No, I've got just wine. Go on, why don't you just have wine? I, I just, <laughs> so why don't you drink? 
Well, if I start, I can't stop. Yeah, but that's awesome, mate. <laughs> Just that's great. It's Friday. Oh, it's not terrible, like, isn't it? I tell them no. It's because I can't. Because like, but again, that's about them. Yeah, I don't want to stand next to you and be drinking when you're not, because that makes me feel uncomfortable. And you think, well, maybe you need to learn to live with your discomfort of yeah. not drinking and smashing back. I remember, you know, places in Brizzy when we were in first year uni and I wasn't a big drinker, but to see people returning to the bar over and over, staggering, unable to stand up, and yet some part of their brain is saying, no, I need another one because I don't actually have one in my hand. And to be around that, it's pretty extraordinary. It's very powerful. That's how I learned to drink. Of course. And it's a shockingly enabling culture. Everyone around you is saying, mate. Mm. What are you? That was it. That was what. That was how. That was how you did it. Mm. And if you didn't, it was like, yeah, what, what are you, mate? Yeah. What are you? Yeah. Oh, anyway, it took a while. Oh, absolutely. I can imagine. It's the same when I, you know, when when I tell people, I, you know, it doesn't make sense. Oh, I don't know why I'm trying to draw any kind of parallels. No, there's a lot of parallels, I think. But when I tell people I don't eat meat, why not? Well, why don't you? What's wrong with you? Do they do that? Really? Yeah, yeah. You've got you got bloody incisors, mate. You've got. Yeah, sharp teeth. You got canine wow. teeth, aren't you? You should be eating it. You should be eating. You should wow. be supporting the beef industry. What's wrong with you? Oh, the beef industry. Oh, yeah, fuck yeah. I've had that one. Sure. I'm like, it's, 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 it's not funny. It takes three kilograms of grain to grow one kilogram of chicken. It's two kilograms of grain that people could have been eating. Oh. There's hungry people. Feed the people. Don't feed the chickens. But also, even if they are, even if they don't want to be informed. Yeah. Why do they give a shit what you eat? Yeah, it's got nothing to do with you. All the more steak for them. <laughs> more steak for you. Yeah. More gay guys, more chicks for you. Oh, wait, more chicks to reject you. <laughs> That's what it is, I think, you know. Um, so while you were doing all this doctoring and looking after the the, the drunks, and, oh, okay, so just before we get off this, mm-hmm. what's your, because every, every doctor's got theirs, what's your... Um, What's your uh, favourite uh, triage story? What's your like? <laughs> oh my god! I can't believe that just happened. Um, uh, ooh, or, or, or what is the day that you you finished your shift? You walked out of there at seven in the morning, going, "Well, I'm still alive." <laughs> <laughs> well, I did have um, I did have a night one night where um, a kid who'd been a skateboarder in the X Games had had a bit of an accident. And he was in a, a bay in the emergency with a curtain between him and the next guy. A lot of privacy, those curtains. They block out amazing things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like two microns thick. Yeah, yeah, that's Let right. me just shut this curtain. We'll just stop that'll the keep blood us, spray. That'll keep us all. Now I'm going to deliver some terrible news. No <laughs> one's going to hear this. Yeah. Next to him was lying um, Hell's Angel bikey, full tats, you know, weighed a couple of hundred kilos, heroin user with a broken arm. And I had both of these patients, of course, because it was, you know, my lucky night. And What town were you in at this point? In Brisbane. Uh-huh. And so went in to see the big guy and the big guy, poor guy, he, if he's a heroin user and he was in pain, understandably, he would have been suffering a lot and he would have wanted and needed analgesia, but we have a policy about that sort of stuff. So I could give him the analgesia that a normal person required, but he needed enough for a small T-Rex, you know. So he was really aggressive and he was in pain and he was really pissed off. And then I went next door and there's like, you know, Roland and Roland's 19 and um, he had groin pain. And I said, so what's been happening? He said, oh, no, I don't know, dude, but like it's just pretty painful down there. 
And so I examined him and he'd split his entire scrotum open and his testicles were intact. Well done, Roland. He'd performed a trick, right, because he was a trickster on his skateboard in a half pipe and landed awkwardly, clearly, and skillfully. And he'd taken a blow to his um, to his groin and basically the, the side of the rail of the skateboard had hit him right in the middle of his nuts and split his skin of his scrotum open. But amazingly, both testes there, glistening, intact, fine. And so he was saying, no way, no way, get a picture, dog, that's rad. And then I'd go next door to the guy with the tiny broken arm and nothing really going on and he's like <laughs> belting it out like he's going to have a baby. And, he, and I said to him, and this was, you know, normally you would never divulge information, but there's this tiny little curtain. I said, listen to me, the guy next door split his nutsack open and he's not asking for pain relief. And that shut Dazer up and Dazer just lay there, you know, sweating. <laughs> Waiting for the cast. Waiting, just give me the... Waiting for the plaster cast. Yep. Oh, my God. It was exhausting. They were both awake all night and I was awake all night and it was just... And then meanwhile there was, you know, an aged woman with a knee pain and all these minor things happening on the side and you just have to keep going back and managing these kids. It was crazy. Oh, my... What do you... I don't know. Now I want to talk about how do you repair a split scrotum. Oh, you, you give it to the surgeon to do. Not take care of it. I mean, actually, not a, not a weekend went by when people would come in with stuff shoved up their ass. And more interesting than the things that they shoved up there were the stories they manufactured. One of them was great. This guy had a jar, a Vegemite jar up his ass. No mean feat. And so he said, uh, oh, Doc, oh, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe what happened. I said, oh, I bet I wouldn't. Barry? He said, yeah, I'd lock myself out of my apartment. And I'm afraid you're going to have to wait till next week to find out what happens to poor Barry. I should mention that all of the names of Bridie's stories have been changed to protect the innocent. And in Barry's case, well, I'll let you know, Barry's story is pretty fantastic. And we'll pick that up same time next week. Um, if you can enjoy Vegemite on Toast between now and then. Uh, you can find Bridie O'Donnell on Twitter. She's at Bridie underscore O-D, B-R-I-D-I-E underscore O-D. Read her blog, bridie.com.au part two of my conversation with Bridie O'Donnell and the conclusion to the thrilling story of what happened to poor old Barry and his jar of Vegemite will continue next week. I've got to get out of here. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being a part of the show. Don't forget, I'm on the ABC every single night this week. If you're in Australia, Monday to Friday, tell people my mum's age to listen because mum uh, knows how to work an AM radio, but she doesn't know how to work a podcasting app. So she was able to listen to the show. So that made me very happy. Mm, nice when your mum says good job. Still, I'm 40. Still nice when your mum says good job. And again, uh, Quentin's episode is on the Monday, the 15th of December. If you're listening to this after Monday, the 15th of December, you can go back and listen to it at oshiginsberg.com. And that's where you can also uh, sign up for my mailing list. If you want to write me an email, just sign up for the mailing list and reply to that. Uh, that's where you can find me. If you want to donate to Quentin's show, pozi.be, posi.be slash Quentin show. I have to go. Um, thank you so much for being here. Without you, I would not be able to make this show. I love making this show. I love long-form interview conversations. I love that I get to be authentic with you and have these moments. I really do. And thank you for your emails because when you write to me and the things you write to me um, prove to me that this is working. So thanks. I really, really am so grateful to you. So until next week, be kind, sleep well, and dream of beautiful things.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.